Coming at you from historic New Brunswick, New Jersey, this is the Matt Ward History Experience. My name's Matt Ward, and I'll be your tour guide today. This month's episode of the Matt Ward History Experience features The Weigh-In, a segment that was recorded on location at the Sirius XM Studios in New York City. The Matt Ward History Experience is brought to you by One Stone Recording and Mastering in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Check out One Stone Recording and Mastering for all of your mixing and mastering needs. One Stone Recording and Mastering is online at onestonerecording.com. We're going to start off the ninth episode of the Matt Ward History Experience with the weigh-in segment from the Sirius XM Studios in New York City. This month's interview is with former editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine and former New York Athletic Commissioner Randy Gordon. Randy is the current host of At The Fights with former professional heavyweight boxing contender Jerry Cooney. The show is on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. During this interview, we were able to discuss Randy's career as well as boxing history. Without further delay, here it is, The Weigh-In. Please introduce yourself to my listeners. It's Randy Gordon. I'm the former chairman of the New York State Athletic Commission, former editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine, and whatever the hell else <laughs> I, I can think of. Um, I'm just a, a fight fan, the luckiest fight fan who has ever been born. <laughs> when did you become interested in the sport of boxing? Uh, it actually happened when I was about, I became very interested at the age of 10, because at the age of 10, I was severely burned on my right leg in an explosion, and I didn't walk for about a year, and I was wheelchair-bound. And then one day while I was recovering, my father asked, hey, want to watch the, the fights tonight? It was the Friday night fights. Now, my father never really watched the fights, but he just was trying to find stuff for me to do, so he invited some of my friends over, and we all sat around and watched the Gillette Friday night fights. And I, I do remember Emil Griffith was one of the fighters. And uh, I watched him glide around the ring. And little did I realize that Emil Griffith would go on to become one of my best friends, that Emil Griffith would train one of my fighters, and that the announcer that I was listening to that day, Don Dunphy, who was, who's, is a Hall of Famer, mm-hmm. I would announce one of my very early fights alongside Don Dunphy. Oh, wow. So, I mean, when I first saw that fight at 10 years old, I became a fight fan. What was the first professional boxing match that you remember going to in person? You know what's funny? I don't think I've ever been asked that question. <laughs> um, the first fight that I went to, I believe was at Sunnyside Garden. I don't think I ever went, uh, I, I think it was in the 60s, late 60s at Sunnyside Garden in Queens. Uh, Bobby Cassidy, who is a Long Islander and, and a light heavyweight contender. Oh yeah. It was Bobby and I don't remember who, but you know, it's funny, I don't think I've ever been asked that question <laughs> and I have never thought about that. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the first fight I ever went to. And I've been to thousands now. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> wow. Growing up, who was your favorite fighter or fighters? 
My favorite fighter, my first favorite fighter was Floyd Patterson. Mm -hmm. And there was just something about him when I used to read about him in my local newspaper called Newsday out on Long Island. Uh, he was a, a guy who came from Long Island. Um, I, I just started following Floyd. And then, of course, I started following uh, Cassius Clay. I just loved the... the the showman about him. He just was more than just another athlete. And then in 1964, I, I just became a huge fan of Smokin' Joe Frazier. Oh, yeah. And a few years later, when I was a senior in high school in 1967, I actually met Joe Frazier. And none of my friends ever believed that I knew Joe Frazier. Mm -hmm. And Joe became my best friend in boxing. And there's pictures all over my house with me and Frazier. <laughs> and uh, those three fighters, though, I became really close with Ali, really close with Frazier. Floyd Patterson and I became so close. And who would have realized that 25 years down the road, Floyd would be replacing me in a, in a job. I was chairman of the New York State Athletic Commission. They replaced me with Floyd. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, this whole thing has been just a wild dream. <laughs> uh, I take it you got to go see the Joe Frazier statue in Philadelphia? Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, seeing that statue actually just brought tears to my eyes mm -hmm. because Joe never got the, the adulation that I think he really, truly deserved. I mean, he was an Olympian. He was a gold medalist. He was always doing charity work like you just wouldn't believe. Um, always friendly. At the, at the top of his game, you could run into Joe on a street, and Joe would take pictures with you, sign autographs with you, talk with you. Um, there was never a time that Joe was too big for the average fan. He, Joe was just, he was one of you. That was Frazier. Do you have an all-time favorite professional bout? I think I can narrow it down to about 100. <laughs> I, I think my favorite is a fight that I was involved with in, in many ways. Um, has to be September 16th, 1981, when I worked on the announce team for Sugar Ray Leonard against Tommy Hearns. Um, in Las Vegas, Sugar Ray had lost only one fight at that time. Uh, that was to Roberto Duran a little over a year earlier. Then he reversed it about 10 months later with the No Mas fight. Mm -hmm. So he had one loss going up against Thomas Hearns, who was unbeaten. And I saw no way that Leonard was going to win the fight. In fact, I picked Hearns to win, and Leonard stopped talking to me for one year. <laughs> and then one day we were working on HBO, and... We were sitting next to each other at the production meeting, and he sat down, and he turned his back on me, and I tapped him on the shoulder. I said, you know, there's going to come a point where you do have to talk to me. <laughs> and he turned around. He said, yeah, you tell me why you picked Hearns to beat me. I said, I thought that's why you're mad at me. He's bigger than you, probably as fast as you, harder hitting than you. I saw no way you could beat him, and all you did was show me and everybody else watching, what a truly great fighter you are. And because I picked a guy who is so great, you're not talking to me? Mm -hmm. And he just said, I feel like shit. <laughs> and he said, I'm really sorry. And to this day, Ray, Ray is just a dear friend of mine.
Yeah. And I think he came to understand that writers are going to pick who they feel is going to win. And I think I picked every reason in the world. But it, I, I sat between, and again, picture this, you know, I sat between the announced team was actually Marv Albert, Dr. Ferdy Pacheco, and um, um, Don Dunphy. I was there to pass them notes and give them information. So on my right was Marv Albert. On my left was Howard Cosell announcing for ABC. Legends. (laughs) And at one point in about the seventh round, Ray Leonard landed a left hook to the body. And Tommy Hearns lifted his right leg off the ground. And Cosell started screaming, the ribs of Thomas Hearns are broken. They're broken. So Marv is hearing this. And he writes me a note, do you think the ribs are broken? I write, no. <laughs> Cosell looks over at the note between the seventh and eighth round. He says, I beg to differ with you. Those ribs are broken, and I'm going to keep saying it. I pointed to Marv, to myself, that I'm going to run over to the corner, and I'm going to talk to Emmanuel Stewart. So now the eighth round is underway, and I go over to Emmanuel. I said, Manny. Howard Cosell is screaming that the ribs are broken, and I'm doing the pay-per-view. Are they broken? He said, no, he had the wind knocked out of them. That's all. They're not Mm. broken for sure. He said, I even pressed on the ribs. Uh, He had the wind knocked out of them. So I went back, and I write, ribs are not broken. At the end of the eighth round, Cosell said, I'm telling you the ribs are broken, and I'm staying with that. (laughs) I'll be proven to be right. Well, as it went on, he realized the ribs weren't broken. And I was telling all my friends, you got to listen to ABC's replay of the fight next week. Because Cosell is screaming, the ribs are broken, the ribs are broken. So the following week, ABC has the replay of the fight, and I'm sitting there watching it, and there's no mention of broken ribs. They had Cosell call over each of those spots. They used the same headset. Oh, man. They used the sound crowd. You can't even tell. So he's going, there's a sharp left hook to the body by Sugar. Ray Leonard, that was a powerful left hook. Knocked the wind out of Tommy Hearns. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm telling everybody, and everybody's saying to me, I watched it. I don't remember anything about him saying broken ribs. It's, they re-recorded it. <laughs> yeah. But the night was just very, very special. To be sitting there, uh, we had a thermometer, and at ringside, it was about n- mid-90s. In the ring, it was about 130. And for those guys to fight in that kind of heat, at that pace, what they did, that's why when somebody asks me today, as happened just before, who do I think would have won between Tommy Hearns and his prime Mm -hmm. and Floyd Mayweather? Well, guess what? I never saw Mayweather fight in those kind of conditions. Oh, yeah. And I do think against Tommy Hearns, who that day I think was the best welterweight on the planet except for one guy. I think that Hearns would have beaten just about anybody you can think of. Amazing fighter. So it was a very, very special night. And then another one of my very special nights, and I really had nothing to do with the fight other than just being the editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine reporting, was Larry Holmes defending against the guy who is now my co-host, Jerry Cooney. And it was just very special. Uh, We knew that there were sharpshooters, FBI sharpshooters up on the roof um, because there were all kind of death threats. Uh, the, um, a lot of black militant groups were threatening Cooney, mm-hmm. and a lot of white racist groups were threatening Larry Holmes. It was a very ugly scene. And 
who would know that today the two of them are best friends? Yeah, yeah. Best. I'm talking close brothers. If Jerry wants Larry on the show, he will just pick up the phone. Larry will get right on with us. That's interesting how things work out like best that. Best friends. Yeah. <laughs> so that was another of the special. But there were so, so many. But that Sugar Ray Leonard-Tommy Earns fight was very special. Cool. I read in Arthur Mercanti's book, Inside the Ropes, that you fought in a professional bout on March 31st, 1976, against Gerald Odom at Nassau Coliseum. Please tell my listeners about what this experience was like. Well, I, I only remember it up to the second round. I, you, um, actually, I won the first round. It had been five years since my last amateur fight. And during that time, I, I had always fought at about 118 pounds, 122 pounds. And I went up, and I was now the editor-in-chief of international boxing, world boxing. And I went up to, I was walking around in the mid-140s. So when I decided to do this, I trained to get back down to the weight that I remembered myself at. Mm-hmm. I was no longer a bantamweight. I was no longer a super bantamweight. If anything, I should have cut just a few pounds because I really had no body fat, even at 145. I should have cut to 135, maybe. Mm-hmm. And it turned out at the last second, um, the guy that I was going to fight fell out. They had to get a last-second opponent, Gerald Odom, and they announced him at 128. I weighed 122, soaking wet. And they brought him into the ring. They said 128, and I took one look at him, and I said, there's no way he's 128. But we went ahead with the fight. I won the first round, rocked him in the first round, and then I actually got a little bit cocky in the second round, and uh, he hit me with three right hands that I only remember the first one. Um, the second I really don't remember, and the third was a right uppercut to the chin that just laid me out. So um, I, I don't remember anything that I can tell you <laughs> other than I saw some pictures. And... Um, to this day, I keep looking playfully for, for Gerard Odom and invite him down to one of the gyms that I box in mm-hmm. because I would love to put the head guard on and, and do it again, um, even at this advanced age. Kind of joking around with that, but I always did want a rematch, but my wife said, you can have a rematch, but before you have a rematch, you have to fight me first, <laughs> and you are not going to win that fight. And I just looked in her eyes, and I saw kill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there was no way I was taking her on, so I never fought again. Did you ever run into Odom after the fight? No. No? Nobody, nobody in the whole boxing world um, on Long Island has ever seen Odom. He was a truck driver. Nobody knows where Gerard Odom is. So, Gerard, if you happen to be listening, know that I want you again. He's <laughs> <laughs> getting called out. <laughs> When did you become editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine? That took place in, in, in 1979. Bert Sugar had bought Ring Magazine and then started asking a whole bunch of people in boxing, who should he give? He said, give me five names of somebody who would be a good editor-in-chief. Mm-hmm. Start with number one. He said that I was not number one on anybody's list, but I was the only one on everybody's list. Oh, yeah. yeah. There were all different names. But I was the only one who made everybody's list. Never number one, maybe number two or three, but on everybody's list. And he said, when I saw your name on everybody's list, I decided to give you a call. Will you meet me in the city? I came into the city, and I I met him at O'Reilly's Pub on 31st Street, which is still there. And Mm -hmm. um, I used to meet 
Bert and I used to put all the magazines together there, and Randall Tex Cobb would meet us there. But as I walked in, there's Bert sitting in the middle of the room with a cigar, and he said, Randall. And I walked over and said, hello, <laughs> Mr. Sugar. My first meeting with Bert. And then as I walked over, he said, everybody, I want you to meet my new editor. And everybody looked. Was, he, he was in there all the time. They knew that he was a writer. And they all started cheering. Bert goes, drinks on the house. <laughs> nice. And I'm like, but I didn't say I'd take the job yet. He goes, you're going to take the job. <laughs> I said, so what is this? And he said, I just bought Ring Magazine with uh, Dave DeBusher, former New York Nick, and I want you to be the editor-in-chief. I'm going to be the publisher. And uh, that really launched my career because my, my, the first guy that I worked for, Stanley Weston, who's in the Hall of Fame, was just as cheap as cheap could be. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to go anywhere. And I decided, Bert then said to me, listen, Ring Magazine is dead. They just came through this big scandal, oh. the ABC Ring King scandal. Mm-hmm. He said, and I can't tell you that we're going to sell magazines. He said, so you're going from a job that you already have to a job that may not make it. I said, you know what? What I know about you and what I know about my ability, we're going to be able to take Ring, rejuvenate Ring, and it's going to be big again. I'd rather try and perhaps fail than stay where I am. And... Uh, it worked. My whole career was born out of that. Very cool. What was your most memorable experience as editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine? It probably, as I think back, it was writing. It was after the June 16, 1983 fight at Madison Square Garden where Roberto Duran took the junior middleweight title from Davey Moore. Mm-hmm. On the undercard, Louis Resto had the padding taken out of his gloves um, against Billy Collins Jr. Well, that was in June. In April, the following April, I was on the Long Island Railroad heading into work, and I got all the papers, and I'm reading the papers, and there was one little blurb in there, Billy Collins dead at 23. Oh. And I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And I knew that he was not doing well after that severe beating. That that famous picture was taken because I had my, my photographer go into his room and take the picture. Ben Sharab, I said, Ben, bring that camera with you. Take a shot, because I know his face is a mess. We have to record this. So I called his father. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> she's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Walking past the office is one of our beautiful on-air air hosts. She, and she, she looks like one of the actresses. The name is just blown up. Anyway, <laughs> I, that, that's what happens around here. Yep. Um, so I talked to his father. His father was crying his eyes at Billy Collins Sr. And he just kept... He was bawling, just sobbing. Tears were running down my face. They killed my boy. They killed my boy. Drugs didn't kill my boy. I was just crying my eyes out. I turned around after we hung up. I said to my secretary, Nancy, 
and Jenny, the two of them, I said, take, take my messages. Do not let me out of this office. Let nobody in here. I don't care what it is. I am writing an editorial. Um, and it was the strongest thing I ever wrote. And it actually started in motion. Panama Lewis and Louis Resto being called in um, um, and hit with charges of assault and they wound up going to jail for two and a half years. So that was definitely the strongest thing I ever wrote. And uh, I ended it, I said, I don't know who actually did this, but somebody did. I know that Billy Collins Jr. is spending eternity in paradise. Mm -hmm. But whoever did this, for the, the ghouls who did this, they will be sent to burn in the fires of hell for the same amount of time. Panama Lewis was so guilty that he called me up cursing me out when that magazine came out. How dare you? I said, how dare I what? Tell me that I'm going to burn in a fire. I said, I never said you did it. In fact, there's nowhere in there that it says you did it. You were there. Mm -hmm. It could have been one of many people. You just told me you did it. Well, P.S., he went to jail for a couple of years, and, and so did Louis Resto. And when, by the time they got out, I now had become commissioner in New York in 1988. Oh. They both came to me for their license, and I said, I cannot do it. I cannot, in good conscience, give you guys a license back. Every year, Resto kept coming in and asking me for a license. And I said, Louie, I'm going to ask you a question. Did you know the padding was taken out? And Louie would look at the floor, hesitate for a few seconds, no. I'd say, Louie, look at me. I got right in front of him, look at me. And no. Louie, I can't give you a license. And he'd sit there and cry, please, it's all I can do. I said, I'm sorry. I can't give you your license back. It was only about two years ago. I see Louis all the time at fights in New York. About two years ago, less than two years ago, I was in the men's room, and there's Louis Resto. And as I'm walking out, he's walking in. He said, hello, Commissioner. I said, hello, Louis. And he said, can I tell you something? And I said, yes. He said, you know you ruined my life. I said, do you really believe that, that I ruined your life? Not that you ruined your life or Panama ruined your life, that I ruined your life. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Louis. Then I, I was going to go into a whole thing, but then I understand that Louis Resto is not the brightest of guys. Really, I mean, it, I, I like Louis, but he's just not a bright guy. And I guess he's been told so many times over the years that I ruined his life. Yeah. And yeah. He, he truly believes that in the little cellar that he lives in with the rats running around, that Randy Gordon did this to him. Mm -hmm. Randy Gordon did not do that to him. Um, and I, I think it's easy enough to understand that I didn't do that to him, uh, that he did it to himself, that Panama Lewis did it, that somebody in that dressing room who took the padding out did it. And then when they made the 30 for 30, which was such a big 
it really was an incredibly done piece that won an Emmy mm-hmm. on uh, on ESPN. It was just just incredible. Um, I had a, a big role in that, and um, you know there were many times we did the filming of it right here, and there were many times during the filming of it that I said you know you can keep going, and I had to wipe the tears out of my eyes because it's it's very painful to talk about. So, I mean. That is my most memorable, and there was a lot of memorable moments at Ring Magazine, but that definitely was the one. Right. You mentioned you became New York's Athletic Commissioner in 1988. What was your proudest moment while serving in this position? I can't think of any one thing that I did other than the day I walked in, I said to my new secretary, Anybody who's a fighter, a manager, a licensee with the commission, this door is always going to be open to them, even on a moment's notice. And she said, Commissioner, nobody does that. Jose Torres before you didn't do that. Jack Prenderville, John Branca, none of them did that. You can't get in to see the commissioner. I said, until now. Any fighter or manager or licensee in the state of New York who wants to see me Maybe I'm, gonna, I'm busy, maybe I'm in a meeting, I won't be able to see them. But if I happen to be in there and you know that I'm going over paperwork or something like that, and I could take a, a few minutes. So I open the doors to every fighter, and, and it's amazing because it's been 20 years since I've been commissioner. Many of the managers and fighters who are now trainers themselves, they all come over to me and say, you know what, I never realized how I was going to miss you as commissioner. <laughs> and then I also trained a lot of judges and and referees, you know, making Wayne Kelly one of the best refs in the world and developing others, having seminars all the time. Uh, I'm very proud to have done that. And um, really was on top of the medicals with the fighters. Mm-hmm. I used to run into the dressing room, and I, and I will tell you this, and I know it sounds like an armchair quarterback, but when Magomed Abdul Salamov was hurt a couple of years ago in New York, I would not have handled it like that. After every single fight, if I even thought that a guy took too many punches, I used to go and sit in his dressing room with him, and I'd tell one of my assistants, take over for me now. And I would sit with him long after the fighters, after the doctors left the commission room, because minutes later, he was already wobbling, and the commission was of no help to him whatsoever. And Abdul Salamov had to go outside, he had to find a cab, he uh, had to basically fight his way to get a cab right, before right. some really nice citizens let him in front. He threw up on the sidewalk. They should have had the ambulance stay, they should have had the ambulance take him away then. Mm-hmm. Um, it really irked me when I found out that happened. And I always did that. And my, all my inspectors will tell you that's what I used to do, a four-round fight a championship fight. I used to go into the guys' dressing rooms and I would sit there with them. If they got cut, if it was a hard fight, I would stay with them because I just care about the fighters. And I, th- I think that's what I brought to the commission, something that I don't think any commissioner since me in 95 has brought. I think Ron Scott Stevens did a great job, but he didn't have that passion mm-hmm. that I have for boxing. I live for this sport. I'm going to die and probably right around managing fighters or whatever. I know that. It's my passion. It's my life. 
Do you have any regrets while serving in this position? I have no regrets whatsoever. Um, I, I'm just trying to think. I, I really, I think for uh, maybe the handling of the, the Mike Tyson um, case in 1989, but I was so inexperienced. I was there one year. I had never really handled a big hearing. And there are certain things you, you should do. You really should be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. But over the years, Governor Mario Cuomo, who was just an incredible governor, lawyer, he taught me, along with my right-hand man who was a lawyer, Rich Heron, they taught me so much about law that if I could rewind the tape, because one of the things that I did, and I did totally wrong from inexperience, as a hearing officer, you're a judge. A judge can only listen and say, strike that from the record or whatever. But a judge can't give his opinion. When Tyson was telling the story about how he got tricked into signing a contract with Jimmy Jacobs and Bill Caton, I knew that he was lying. So I said, Mike, and I had a picture brought down from my office. I said, do you remember this picture? And he said, yes, I do. I said, do you remember what you told me when this picture was taken? And Mike looked at it, and he remembered. I said, what did you tell me? Now, right before this, he was saying he had no idea that Jimmy Jacobs was dying. Mm -hmm. Right after that picture was taken, he, he broke down, hugging me, crying on my shoulder. Did you hear that Jimmy Jacobs is dying? He was lying. But as an inexperienced hearing officer, I didn't know this. Oh. And I sat there and I said, Mike, you're lying. With that, the Tyson people knew that he got caught in a lie that, that we were going to keep the contract. His attorney said, Commissioner, that's a very nice story, except you just became a witness. These hearings are over. I flipped the table upside down. I ran into the bathroom. I threw the garbage can upside down. I'm kicking everything. And one of the attorneys came in for Don King, and he's commissioner. What are you going crazy for? It's not your money. I said, it's not yours either. It's Mike Tyson's, and you're ripping this kid off. Mm -hmm. And history has shown what happened. Even in, in Tyson's... Um, Undisputed truth. Yeah. When the pictures come up, have you, if you've seen it. Yep. Um, when Don King comes up, he will tell you and he will make you cry with this. How I thought this man was my best friend, and he betrayed me and he stole money from. It's not me saying. I knew it back then. That if I only could have told them, but commissioners don't tell fighters you're with the wrong person. And what if I was wrong? Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't. But if I could do everything over, or anything over, it would be, I want that hearing back again. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. You host the Sirius XM Rush Show at the Fights on Channel 93 with former heavyweight contender Jerry Cooney. And what year did you start hosting the show? Um, we started doing the show, I started at Sirius in 2007, doing an MMA show called Fight Club. And in 2009, Jerry and I were put together for At The Fights. We started doing one show a week, and we're doing two shows a week, and uh, I think pretty soon it's going to be three shows a week. But every, every week since 2009, Jerry and I are together. Cool. 
and we weren't the best of friends when he was fighting. Mm-hmm. His management had told him that the media were devils and they're writing bad things about him. So he hated all the media. Until one day, I said, I want to know why you don't talk to me. And he said, because you write bad things about me. I said, what have I ever written bad? <laughs> I said, I tell you what, Jerry, I'm going to bring every magazine I can find where I wrote something about you. Let me buy you lunch. And we went to a, a little place on Long Island. We sat down. I'm showing him story after story with the greatest left jab possibly in the history of the heavyweight division, a left hook that hasn't been seen since Joe Frazier. And I said, show me where I'm writing something bad. <laughs> he couldn't find one thing. I said, because there is nothing. We became friends then, and he's like my, my little brother now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite guest or guests that have been featured on your show? Deontay Wilder mm-hmm. is my favorite guest. Um, I've been having him on since he came out of the Olympics. I've been a believer of his for the longest time. And Deontay always just lights up the show whenever he comes on. Um, So many of the guests have been just great. I mean, Sugar Ray Leonard has been great. Um, I I really can't think of anybody that, that hasn't been terrific. But Deontay Wilder is my favorite guest and has been on more than anybody else. I mean, when he came on, we had him on. George Foreman is another one. Mm-hmm. Just tremendous. Um, we had both George Foreman and Deontay Wilder on the night that Ali was announced that he was in a coma. Deontay broke down on the air, was crying. George Foreman came on, and I said, I'm ho- I'm, my voice is breaking. And I said, George, I'm going to ask you something now. I'm going to ask a question to Reverend George Foreman. Muhammad Ali lies in a coma in Arizona. I don't know that he's going to make it. He's not going to make it. Can you, as Reverend George Foreman, just take me and the audience, the listening audience, through a little prayer for Muhammad? He was so unbelievable. I mean, he started in that big bass of his, that big bass voice, and he said, you know, we love Muhammad Ali. And right now he's facing the uh, he's facing the, the fight of his life, but because of all our love, the Grim Reaper has been beaten. And I mean, Jerry and I was sitting. I looked at Jerry; he had tears rolling down his face. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have guest after guest who's just unbelievable. Teddy Atlas is going to be on in a little while. Teddy's always animated. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to ask him some questions. Um, I'm giving you. I'm going to ask him questions about the PBC and what it did to the shows on ESPN. Uh-huh. That he actually kind of lost his job. Yeah. That he was on every single week for about 10 years. The PBC kind of killed that with these special shows that weren't even as good as the ones he was doing. I'm going to let him go off on, because when Teddy goes off, and I'm thinking that he will go off. Right. Um, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to it. And we have a reality uh show guests coming on. I have no idea really much about her. But um, when they come on, they're just so much fun. And because there's no holds barred on on serious radio, Mm -hmm. you never know where an interview is going to go. Yeah, I really enjoy your show. It's very good. Thank you. Because it's not scripted. I mean, mean, you know, I might put a little few things in the opening or whatever, but it's just all ad-lib. It's two hours of ad-lib, taking phone calls, making fun of some callers. We have one guy... Babbling Bernie, yep. 
who doesn't mind us calling him Babbling Bernie. He asks inane <laughs> questions, and so we see his name, and, and let's go to Staten Island and Babbling Bernie. Yep, yep. And we might be talking about the PBC. And like, yeah, Rand, can you tell us what's happening with uh, Dimitrenko? And I'm like, where do you come up with this stuff? We're talking about the PBC, and you're talking about, uh, you know, names that we can't even pronounce. Where are you coming up with this? I said, Bernie, you're nut. Get off, get off the line. Sometimes I'll throw them off playfully. Um, but um, we, we just love every second of it. We have a two-hour show twice a week. We want it three times a week. We want it four times a week. We want it five times a week. We want four hours, not two. That's how much we love it. And you'll, when, uh, when you see Jerry Cooney, you'll see how much we just enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any plans to write a book on your career? Just finished. Cool. Just finished a book called Glove Affair. And uh, it's all about the stuff that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. All these little individual stories, me with Sugar Ray Leonard, me with Mike Tyson, me with Muhammad Ali, stories people know who they are, but stories with me, Ali doing magic tricks for me, Ali levitating for me. And there are people who have seen him levitate, and they all are just like me. We know it can't be done, but he did it, and we have no idea how. <laughs> and in that chapter on Ali... I say, all I know, he always said he could float like a butterfly. Maybe he could. <laughs> um, so it, it's going to be a fun book. My agent has it now. And then I'm looking at this. Several choices I have. I really want to write another book. And the book I'm thinking of is on the Ayala family. Tony Ayala, El Torito, Mike oh, Ayala, yeah. Sammy Ayala, Paul Ayala. The fighting Ayalas with their brutal father who just whipped them into fighting and turn them all into animals with the, I mean, especially Tony. Mike Ayala came up here a week ago. He was absolutely incredible. But I could see this kind of movie, I could see this book, this story, being made into a documentary. Mm -hmm. It's just about this Mexican father who actually was in, raised in the United States, uh, was in the military for the United States. I, I believe he fought in, in uh, I think the Korean War. Mm -hmm. I want to find out more about it. I want to find out when when the Ayalas were fighting Tony Ayala in the early 80s. He was unbeaten on NBC every couple of weeks. The mother would want them to do their homework. And apparently he beat the mother, saying, stop telling them to do their homework. They don't have to go to school. What are they going to go to school for? To be doctors? To be lawyers? That's never going to happen. They're going to be fighters. They're Mexicans. They're going to be fighters. And he pushed each one of them into the ring. And I think at one point, none of them really wanted to fight, with the exception of Tony. Very cool. So I want to find out more about that. And Mike and I are speaking on the phone every day. I have an idea for a second book, which affects all of us. When we have older parents, mm -hmm. you've heard the expression, a black widow. Yeah, yeah. My father was almost the victim of a black widow and my brother and I basically rescued him from the black widow last year oh wow um, my father died shortly after that <clears throat> shortly after that and she was out to take his entire fortune yeah I didn't want anything but I didn't want her to get it which she didn't deserve it she right. was there to steal it and we were able to expel her she fought us and when she realized she wasn't going to win I mean it was, she was paying the attorneys 
and she realized she couldn't do it and that we were going to win. We had too much on her. So I want to write a book about black widows, which affect every single one of us, or can. It could be you and me in yeah, later life. Definitely. You know, it could be our parents, our loved ones. When one half of the team passes on and that other, other half is brooding, mm-hmm. and then these black widows latch on to them, and they're called black widows because there is, it's, it's the female black widow. After mating, she kills the male. Yeah, yeah. And the black widows, as this one was going to do, she was trying to get my father to sign over his entire estate and everything, his bank accounts, wow. everything to her. Once he would do that, she would then begin putting salt in his food that he couldn't have oh. and maybe putting almond um, drops in his food that would kill him almost right away and she was starting to do stuff like that when she saw that the end was coming near that my brother and I were closing in on her so that's another book that I want to write and a third one is going to be entirely different on class reunions mm-hmm. it's just going to be called class reunion oh cool I am putting together another one of my class reunions and the stories that have come out of these so it's going to be a general kind of it could be your class or anybody's class but it's going to have three different one is going to be a totally fictitious chapter totally mm-hmm. made up another one is going to be a true chapter with the names changed to protect the guilty yeah <laughs> and a third chapter where it's just real where Bobby went ahead and married Mary you know they had an affair or whatever and they're together and they said you could tell the story um, so Class Reunion is a third book I'm looking at but Glove Affair is right now in the hands of my, my attorney and we're looking for a nice publisher to put it out and I can hardly wait till Glove Affair comes out that's awesome I can't wait to read it Randy it sounds very good look forward to signing it for you awesome thank you uh, Randy you mentioned earlier that Deontay Wilder you're a fan of Deontay Wilder uh, what are the who are some of the other fighters that you're a fan of current fighters so many yeah just yeah so <laughs> so 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 many um you know I've become friends with big baby Miller as yep. crazy as he is uh Anthony Joshua has become a real good friend of mine uh Sergey Kovalev we were just hanging out in here a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. and he said you know I, I really like talking to you <laughs> yeah and, remember that episode and he said you you have love for this game <laughs> yeah. and yeah, I, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. Um, it's, it's, it's endless. Uh, I could just go down the, the ratings. So many of them call me, text me, Facebook me, tweet with me. I mean, Rosie Perez, who's like the queen of boxing, we're yeah. always texting back and forth. She comes on the show all the time. Um, this is a world where when people who don't know the boxing world say, how could you be in the boxing world, such a rough... Uh, the shady kind of and I'll look at them and I'll say, let me see you're an attorney mm-hmm. your world is not shady you're a politician your world is not shady you're a yeah. doctor you don't write prescriptions or you don't know people every every occupation has its shady seedy sides boxing has it but all I've seen in my maybe 45 years in the sport I've seen some bad stuff but every other business I've seen shady stuff. I've met the best people I could even imagine in the sport of boxing from the Joe Frazier's and the Muhammad Ali's and the, and the Deontay Wilder's who is in this just he wanted to make money for his daughter who was born with spina bifida. Mm-hmm. And he said, baby, 
I got to do something to make money for you, to get your surgeries. And he has. That's the side of Deontay that people don't see. And, and so many other fighters just like that. So if I could do it all over again, I'd do it all over again because these fighters are the nicest people anybody can even imagine. And I, I know athletes in other sports, you know, I, I could go around some of the golfers I've met are, are just horrid people. Uh, some tennis players are, are just miserable to people who might come up to them like, get out of here. Who are you? Yeah. Get out. No, I'm not signing this autograph for you. Fighters don't do that. Agreed, yeah. yeah. They'll, they'll sign, hey, you got the phone. Take a picture with me. Yep. That's boxers. They do that. I love fighters. I, so, no, I, I can't name any because we'll be here for the next three days. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough, Randy. Fair enough. Is there anything else you'd like to say to my listeners? Yeah, if you haven't, I, I'm sure that a lot of you are boxing fans. Understand this is a great sport. And if you're on the fence, give it a shot. Because I think boxing is getting bigger again. MMA came in. I love MMA. I watch it all the time. It's a different sport, though. Uh, boxing is another one of the combat sports. And I think as you, as you watch it and you get to really meet these fighters and, and listen to the fighters and, and hear their lives um, and you really understand what the game is about. It's not just about beating each other up. It's, it's a ballet with bruises mm-hmm. and it's hit and not be hit. I wish I, I knew years ago what I know now about it. Um, it's the greatest sport in the world and, uh, and I like all the sports out there but boxing to me is the greatest sport and uh, I'm taking it uh, taking it to my grave. It's what I love. <laughs> very well said, Kamish. Thank you very much for sitting down with me this evening. Thank you so much for having me, and I, I gotta tell you, I just gotta add, my wife, my five kids, there are five respective others, our ten grandkids, about to have an eleventh. When I have, when you, you have the love of your job and the love of your family the way I do, I really am truly one of the luckiest, not fans, but luckiest people ever to be put on this planet. Very well said. Thank you again. You got it. If you have a history event that you would like promoted on my blog and podcast, please contact me via Twitter, Facebook, or on my blog. I'll be happy to promote your event free of charge. That does it for the ninth episode of the Matt Ward History Experience. The Matt Ward History Experience is brought to you by One Stone Recording and Mastering in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Check out One Stone Recording and Mastering for all of your mixing and mastering needs. Go to onestonerecording.com slash mwhistory and receive 10% off of your first session. I want to thank my guests Randy Gordon and you, the listeners. The links to all sites associated with Randy Gordon and At The Fights are posted in the episode notes on my blog. Last, but certainly not least, I want to thank my good friend Peter Lloyd at One Stone Recording and Mastering for providing tech support for this episode. I can be reached on the blog, the Matt Ward History Experience, at mwhistoryexperience.com, on Twitter, at RevWarBuff23, or on my Facebook page. Until next time, I'm Matt Ward, and this is the Matt Ward History Experience.